Hello and welcome along to the Property Academy Podcast by Opus Partners. I'm your host, Tim Knight. And today we're talking about the lower the deposit, the better. Now, at a recent webinar, we were talking all about deposits, and I think Andrew and I were banging on about why you want to use as low a deposit as possible. And someone asked, well, why do you say that it's the lower the deposit, the better? And it all comes down to how you measure returns from your investment property. Now, one of the big things we've tried to get across is that when you measure your returns, You've got to do it based on what you put into the property. Now, sometimes it's cash flow. You've got to top up an investment property. We've discussed this. But it's also the deposit you put in. And that's whether you borrow that deposit or whether you use some cash. And specifically, we're talking about the deposit that the bank requires. Now, Andrew, just give us an example of why this is important. So a classic one, say you buy an investment property, which is $600,000, and you put $120,000 deposit in. When your property which is worth $600,000, goes up by 5%. It's gone up by $30,000. Now, $30,000 is a 25% return on your 120K deposit. So when we talk about putting in a lower deposit, that's because we're wanting you to think about the return you're getting on what you're putting in, the equity that you're putting in, or the total return on your investment. The reason for that is because this shows the power of using someone else's money, i.e. the bank's. And let's put some more numbers around this to really dig into it. So we're going to compare three different types of property purchases. So let's say there are three $500,000 properties all next to each other in a row. Now, one is either a new build or an owner-occupier, and that means you're only going to have to put in a 20% deposit. One's going to be an existing property. That means you're going to need a 35% deposit. And let's say the third property is an apartment where the bank requires a 50% deposit. So that could be the case if it's a dual key, for instance. Now, if each of those $500,000 properties goes up by 5%, then you've made 25K on each of them. And although you've made the same amount of money, the return you get is quite different. I'll show you what I mean. So let's start with the apartment, the one that you have to put in a 50% deposit. So you've got to put in $250,000 as the deposit because it's 500K, 50% deposit. So if your property goes up by 5%, you make $25,000. That is a 10% return on the deposit you put in. Okay, let's come to the existing property. Now it's the same priced property. You made the same $25,000 because your property went up by 5%. But for this one, you only had to put in $175,000 as a deposit because the bank only requires a 35% deposit. Well, 25 grand, what your property went up by, is a 14% return on the 175 grand that you put in. So it is a 14% return compared to a 10% return on the high deposit apartment that you purchased. So in each of these examples, I'm still getting the same output, but I've had to put more money in, so it's a lower return on investment. Yeah, you get the same amount of dollars out, but it's all about what is the percentage on the money that you had to put into it. And it's an interesting one because I know that sometimes people think, well, if I'm borrowing the money, if I'm borrowing all of the money to put in, what difference does it make? Well, it still makes a difference. That's still more money that you're putting at risk. You're putting more of a burden on your own house or your other properties to be able to do that. The other thing you've got to remember is there's only so much money you can borrow against your own house, right? Like there is a value to it. We don't have unlimited money that we can borrow against our house. So if you've only got so much deposit, which all of us do, then it's about how do I use that money to get the highest return? 
And if we think about the last property, the new build or the owner-occupier, the holiday home, the one that you can purchase with just a 20% deposit, you get the same 25 grand out because your property went up by 5%, but that is a 25% return on the $100,000 deposit you put in. So basically, the smaller the deposit, the bigger the leverage, the bigger the percentage returns you get out. And what's really interesting is that if you were to use, for example, a 1% deposit, a five grand deposit, and your property increased by 25 grand, that would be a 500% return on the deposit you put in. Now, it's not possible to do that. You can't actually yeah, I mean, do that. That the old days. That's what I did. But I'm just trying to show you the lower the deposit, the higher percentage return you get. But Andrew, while this thinking sounds really good, we've also got to think about the risks associated with this type of thinking. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is what happens if property prices go down? So lower deposits means that you've got higher debt, which is great when properties go up. When everything's working in your favor, it's awesome. But when the market goes the other way, you can be pushed into negative equity. And you know, there's been lots of articles over the last two years about those people like first home buyers that have bought in the Wellington market. The market's plummeted. And I'm not, I'm not just picking on Wellington, I'm just the first one that comes to mind. And all of a sudden, their mortgage is more than what the actual value of the house is. Well, let's say you buy a $500,000 investment property with no cash deposit, everything borrowed, which is very common when you're a property investor and borrowing against your own home. Well, if property prices then go down by 5%, you've got a $500,000 mortgage, but you've got a house that's only worth $475,000. So you've got twenty-five dollars worth of negative equity. Now, those big returns that we've talked about before, where you might get 25% on the money you put in, those are massive returns, but it also comes with some pretty hefty risks in the short term. And that leads to a really good question of, well, if you are taking those risks, how do you address them? And the first thing is holding for the long term, right? In any given year, property prices are going to go up, they're going to go down. Over the long term, property prices tend to go up then. So if you're holding a property for 10 years, for 15 years, it's far more likely that you are going to make money compared to if you only hold that property for one year or six months. And the other thing is, I think being really realistic about what the risks are. We did a great podcast in 2023 talking about that in Auckland, at any given year, there was about a 70% chance that property prices go up and there's about a 30% chance that property prices go down. Well, if you go into property investment with your eyes wide open thinking, okay, well, I've got a better than even chance of my property price going up this year, but there is a pretty decent chance 30% that my house value goes down this year, then you go in with that mindset of holding for the long term that it's not always going to work out. The other thing you can do is look at some of the near-term projections. So we've now got an updated article on our website that constantly has the latest house price projections for the next year from all of the major banks, the Reserve Bank and Treasury as well. So you can kind of get a sense of, well, where's everybody's head at? Do they think house prices are going to go up? Do they think they're going to go down over the next 12 months? So number one, thinking about the long term. Number two, being realistic about those risks and then actually looking at a range of house price projections from some of the major banks that can set your expectations and just help you understand those risks a little bit more. Now, Andrew, who would and wouldn't that strategy of using as low a deposit as possible who would that strategy work and not work for? So the people who are in the starting blocks and running the race, this works a treat because you want to, again, use as little of your own cash as possible so that you can continue to build a portfolio. 
If you're older and nearing retirement or you're crossing the finish line, absolutely not appropriate. And the reason for that is that if you're nearing crossing the finish line, if you're getting a little bit older, maybe a, maybe a 60 years old, you might want to use a bigger deposit. And the reason is you are potentially not investing for as long. You know, if you're really young, you could hold on to that property for 30, potentially even 40 years and just wait for property prices to go up. If you're a bit older and you might need access to the money sooner because you're retiring, then that's where, hey, you might want to use that larger deposit because you can't necessarily weather those storms as much. But Andrew, just explain for us the difference between a cash deposit and a bank deposit because this becomes really important when we are talking about this. Yeah, and also deposits can be a bit confusing because we use them in several contexts. So you might have a deposit that you're going to pay a vendor or a deposit that you're going to pay a builder to build a property. But what we're talking about here is the amount of money you're putting in when you're borrowing money from the bank. So if you're putting in a cash deposit, that's actual cash in your bank. So the $120,000 is in your bank and you're going to borrow the 80%. If we're talking about a borrowed deposit, that's going to be when you're borrowing that $120,000 against existing security properties, so your own house or other rental properties. So you're still borrowing that money, but it's borrowed against a different asset. Okay, now that leads to a really good question of, well, how do I get access to lower deposit lending? So you guys on this podcast are saying to me, okay, you get higher percentage returns if you can get the lowest deposit possible. How do you actually do that? So new builds, so new builds are exempt from the LVR restrictions, so therefore you can go on with a low deposit. So usually speaking, if you're buying a rental property, then that's a 20% deposit to get the best interest rates. But actually some banks will allow you, if you pay a premium, to go as low as a 10% deposit. I know it's kind of, you have to have really strong income, so just work on a 20% deposit as a general rule of thumb, but you can potentially go a little bit higher than that. Yeah, that compares to a 35% deposit, which you'd typically need for an existing investment property. Non-bank lenders, so again, if you're buying an existing property, but you want to have a uh, lower deposit, you might be able to go to a non-bank lender. You're going to pay more in interest rates and potentially fees, but you can do so with a lower deposit. Or the other way is borrowing outside of the LVR restrictions. So banks have a bit of discretion where they can lend to you with a lower deposit even with an existing property. Now, it doesn't probably happen very often nowadays. And again, you probably have to be that double income, really strong income, no kids, like perfect borrower to be able to get that. But yeah, if, it's only about one in 50 investment properties that are able to borrow outside the LVR restrictions. Yeah, so you're probably not going to see a lot of it. But again, that is a way. And the last thing that I just mentioned is you might be thinking, well, is that really the right way to measure investment property returns? Which is an excellent question you actually need to ask yourself. Now, using that lower deposit mindset is probably the right fit if you're focused on capital appreciation and building wealth rather than cash flow. You know, this would be my way to think. But if you're a yield-based investor, this probably isn't the right way to measure returns. So that kind of low deposit thinking works really well if you are 30 to 55 years old, maybe even younger. And you're thinking, hey, I need a way to build a lot of wealth over the next 15 to 20 years. You know, I just want to buy properties and wait for them to go up in value. This is probably the right mindset to be in. But if you're thinking, I just want to get cash flow from an investment property, like this would not be the right tool to measure property investment returns, thinking about return on equity, because that's not what you're actually going after. And that's why tomorrow we're going to weigh up all of the different ways you can measure investment property returns. So you can use the right tool or the right measurement 
based on what you actually want to achieve. And I think that's probably one of the discussions that sometimes doesn't happen in property investment circles. You know, we talk about, oh, what's the right way to measure investment property returns? Oh, you know, this sort of property is best for this, or that sort of property is best for that. It actually comes down to, well, what do you want to achieve? Do you want cash flow? Do you want capital appreciation? And then you're going to use a different measurement tool to actually get you that. And so if you want to learn about that, tune into tomorrow's episode. Right, let's wrap it up there. But please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Property Academy podcast. Really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey, if you want to buy an investment property in 2024, you've got to check out my new calculator. It'll give you a sense of whether you can actually afford something this year. Just go to opuspartners.co.nz slash 2024. That's slash 2024. Listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Steve Knight. I'm Andrew Nickel. We're going to be back here tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics, and insights to help you win the most in the New Zealand property market. Until next time.